Welcome to Our Faith in Writing. I'm Charlotte Donlin. As a writer and a spiritual director for writers, I believe writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. Our Faith in Writing explores the intersection of writing and faith through conversations about the writing process, the reading life, contemplative practices, and more. Thanks for listening. You're about to hear an episode from one of my old podcasts that explores themes connected to our faith in writing. You may hear the Lists of Nine podcast or the Art and Faith Unplugged podcast mentioned during this episode, and that's okay. You're still here with us at Our Faith in Writing. Thanks again for listening. Today, my guest is Delvin Case. Delvin, thanks for joining me today. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. So Delvin Case is a musician, writer, scholar, and educator based in Boston. He is a composer of classical concert music whose work often explores themes from the Christian tradition, as well as a scholar of popular music. He writes about the intersections of music and religion for both academic and general audiences, including on his Pathios blog, Alleluia, Music and the Christian Life. He is the founder of Dues Ex Musica, an ecumenical organization that promotes sacred music as a resource for learning and faith formation. He also teaches at Wheaton College in Massachusetts, which ironically is a secular institution unrelated to the Wheaton College in Illinois. All right. I um, would love to hear a little bit more about what it means to be a scholar of popular music and how that happened and um, what that looks like as, you know, your like how that takes like. In your everyday life, what does that mean? <laughs> well, it means that I listen to a ton of popular music, you know, from all eras and all genres, going back a hundred years, you know. But especially the stuff today. Um, but I do it with a critical ear, you know. I mean, I'm sort of always thinking about, um, you know, how the music works, what the artist is saying through the lyrics, but what the what the political issues are around the artist's image or um, or, or what they sort of, how they operate or present themselves in the media. Um, uh, and I also teach, you know, courses in songwriting and history of popular music. So I, I, I want to always provide a, I do a lot of this listening so that I can provide a lot of, uh, you know, songs and repertoire and information and, and topics and genres that might, that will be relevant to my students today, but also to put it in a historical context. Um, when I do, you know, scholarly work, um, I'll just I will choose a, a you know a or scholarly or or general writing on popular music. I'll choose a song or a genre or artist or a theme, and essentially just explore what others have written about that, and then try to find my own space within it. Usually, it starts with the idea, and then you find how other what other people have said about it to support or challenge your idea. Um, so uh, the long the short answer is that um, I listen to a ton of music, um, but it's not always just relaxing. Okay, cool. And um, side note, one reason this podcast is called Art and Faith Unplugged is that I don't do any editing. I um, don't have an intro or an outro with like music and fancy stuff. And I may mess up and my guests may mess up or say the wrong thing at the wrong time. And we have an agreement to just keep going and correct ourselves if we need to. And I may stumble over my words like I did just a little while ago. And it's okay, because that happens in real life. Um, well, thanks for explaining what it looks like and, you know, to be a um, scholar of popular music. You wrote a piece called The Prophetic Power of Popular Music for Sojourners. Um, when did you write that? I don't think I looked it, that part up. It was uh, August or September 2020. Okay, so it's a pretty recent piece. Um I'm going to use that piece as our jumping off point for our conversation and um, any listeners out there, you you are definitely welcome to read this piece and I recommend you read it, but it's not a requirement for you to listen to this podcast episode. So Delvin, can you tell us a little bit about this piece and its theme, just kind of generally what it's about? So Sojourners, you know, is a magazine for, uh, for the progressive Christian community 
um, progressive evangelical community to a certain extent. Um, but it's very politically uh, engaged and their, their angle is exploring the Christian life and, and history and, and, and faith and theology and culture, uh, within the lens of, uh, Jesus's prophetic call to, um, raise, um, awareness to the ways that our world does not, uh, serve God and, and reflect the kingdom of heaven, uh, and the ways that Christians ought to reorient themselves to better follow Christ through the ways we act actively in the world. Um, now, um, I pitched an article to them because I had been working for about 10 years on a research project on secular pop songs that were about Jesus. So if you, you might think, um, if I say that you might, many listeners might think of something like, um, Carrie Underwood's Jesus take the wheel or Kanye West's Jesus walks. Now Kanye has converted to Christianity and, and, Carrie Underwood is a, is a Christian. There are many other songs, even going back. I mean, in, there are some really funny country songs from the sixties, like, uh, drop kick me Jesus through the goalposts of life. Um, there are so many. Um, and you know, the fact is that I was interested because these songs are, um, uh, they're taking most of them. Okay. Maybe not drop kick me Jesus, but most of them take very, <laughs> take very seriously, uh, the claims of Jesus. Now, many of them don't accept those claims, but they take them seriously and they argue with Jesus and they yell at Jesus and they they cry to Jesus and they reject Jesus and they accept Jesus. And and if you look at you know popular songs over the last fifty or so years in all genres, Jesus keeps showing up. Uh, he just sort of haunts this tradition. I found over five hundred songs uh, in which G- written by popular artists, some of whom are Christians, but many whom are not. Many of whom don't even know what their faith is, but they, Jesus appears in their song in some way. And so I looked at these, it took me about 10 years because I taught a class on this. And I basically came up with this really long database where I sort of looked at all these songs and I tried to figure out, are there any sort of trends? Like if you were to do a sort of a Christology of popular music, what are, who is the Jesus of popular music? Um, and I found some really interesting things. One of the things that I found is that there is a small subset of songs that view Jesus as a prophetic voice um, that recognize him as being someone who basically uh, spoke truth to power in the first century and who, even though they might not follow Jesus, at least respect his sort of rebelliousness. And so the Sojourner's article was sort of songs about Jesus by secular artists that we as progressive Christians are Christians who are really trying to make the world a better place by, by following Christ's call to, to radically transform the world can benefit from. Um, And that's where the piece came from. So I highlighted several songs in which Jesus is presented as like a social justice warrior or as this rebel or as this guy who basically is sticking his middle finger up, his holy middle finger to, to the power, <laughs> to the powers that be. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what I focused on. And that's not the only way Jesus shows up in pop music, but it's a really interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's definitely an interesting piece and something that has led me to think about all kinds of other angles of how to view popular music. So I appreciate uh your work and what it has um, led me to think about, you know, just in the last few days. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about a few of the songs you mentioned in this piece. Um, One is the game's Jesus piece. Um, Johnny Cash is the greatest cowboy of them all. And Jello Biafra. Did I say that right? Okay, Jello Biafra's Jesus Was a Terrorist. And if we have time, or we're not like over that part of this episode, we may talk about one more song about Jello Biafra, but we may not. We'll see how that goes. Um, so what else would you add to um, this piece or the conversation um, with regard to the game's Jesus piece? Yeah, so the game is a, a really terrific uh, rapper. Uh, this is a song from a few years ago uh, from his, his record called Jesus Peace. It's not that. I'm trying to think what year it is. Um, not that long ago. Maybe 10 years old. Maybe I'm dating myself. Um, 
And but he was a collaboration with uh, Kanye West is on that track, and so was Common. So you got some real heavy hitters. Um, and he is he, now the song Jesus Peace. It, it's spelled the piece is spelled P I E C E. But this is rap, so you know that there's a there's a there is a, a pun going on here. I mean, wordplay is so important in many kinds of African American music, uh, and hip hop certainly is built on this kind of these connotations that come about from a lot of pun and wordplay. So, uh, but of course, uh, geez, a Jesus piece is a uh, you is has become sort of a, a symbol. It's like a piece of material culture that shows up a lot in hip hop songs. And it actually comes, um, it's essentially a, 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 a sort of a, what do you call it? Like a necklace. That's a crucifix. Um, that's usually, you know, blinged out, if you will. Now, many scholars have written about the Jesus piece and what it represents. Uh, because if you think about, if you think about sort of Jesus, you know, like he kind of wasn't about bling, um, kind of was poor, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> really what you know was for uh not an ur- not urban uh really at- preaching against uh the importance of wealth it's really interesting to see in in sort of the world of hip hop uh how the jesus piece ends up u- being used as a symbol for for power and wealth and success it's sort of another example of hip hop artists and and black artists in general throughout history taking us a, a word or a symbol from the dominant society and then redefining it in a way. And the best example of this is the word bad, where if you think of Michael Jackson's bad or uh, LL Cool J's I'm bad from the eighties, or just the word bad, which, you know, of course means good. Uh, and mm-hmm. just one example of African-American vernacular um, uh, vocabulary, taking a word that was defined by the dominant culture and then completely re- reinterpreting it and then owning it. And so the Jesus, this happens to Jesus in a lot of hip hop, because in hip hop, Jesus is generally held out to be a person who is highly respected, but he's respected for his power. Um, and but what's interesting is that, well, as a Christian, I wouldn't deny that Jesus has power. Jesus, when he was on the earth, didn't seem to have a lot of power. I mean, he was crucified and, you know, he, but on the other hand, like he didn't have a lot of power or a significance on uh, based upon the standards of the world at the time. He wasn't wealthy. I mean, he was a man, uh, but he wasn't wealthy. He was, you know, his Judea was occupied by, by, by the Romans, you know, so he wasn't a part of a, the dominant religion. Um, but he exercised what we might call soft power. And how did he get his power? He got his power through his ability to spellbind audiences with what he had to say and to convince people to follow him. And then dying for what he believed in ended up living on as a legend. Now, everything I just said would probably be a a rapper's, you know, um, you know, uh, basically a rapper's, you know, greatest dream come true for everyone to look at you and be, and, and think that you are, you know, a rapper gets their power fundamentally from their ability to use words, to create an image of themselves. That's so compelling that they, people follow them. People want to be like them. They are so authentic to themselves and to what they believe in that they may even martyr themselves because they're so hardcore and then they will live on as a legend. So essentially you can see in that way why Jesus might be so powerful as sorry, powerfully symbolic for, for rappers. Now what's interesting is when you have a Jesus piece, you have actually like a diamond encrusted crucifix. So that's an interesting way to, to, to use, to present Jesus in that way because rappers of course are oftentimes about, worldly success as well. Um, and that's another way to talk about that is that again, coming from an oppressed community, there are very few avenues for success, uh, that are, that are, that are available and, um, you know, often, oftentimes, uh, accruing wealth and, and boasting about wealth, uh, is a way to prove that one has overcome, uh, the, the oppressive situation of the economic system or the prison industrial complex or whatever. All that being said, in the in the game's Jesus piece, he he talks about a lot of he basically like a lot of rap songs in which Jesus is mentioned. Uh, the the game compares himself to Jesus, oftentimes identifies himself with Jesus. Basically, just I'm just like Jesus. Or a lot of rap songs actually say I'm better than Jesus. Um, so in this song, you know, he says um, me and Ye like Kanye killing. Okay, so basically, like basically, basically being awesome, right? Um, something like my Jesus piece. Lord will and I see a billion till then I let my nuts hang something like my Jesus piece. 
throw them suicide doors up, uh, which I guess is, I, I had to learn this myself. It's like kind of a door from like a sports car and let that Holy ghost swang something like my Jesus piece. So we're all, we're already getting connections between like, he's identifying his genitalia, like as, <laughs> or his piece as Jesus, right? Or a piece is a gun, right? It's also a piece. Then of course, there's also the piece as in like, you know, world peace. Uh, so it's a really complicated series of, 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 of symbols here. But the most important thing sort of overall is that the game is not saying he's a Christian. He's not making a theological point, but he's taking Jesus who he understands that Jesus is powerful and was powerful for certain ways. And he's saying Jesus, who was an outlaw and who exerted power outside of the dominant structures of authority, uh, he's like me. I'm like him. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the way he's doing it by comparing his his genitalia and blinging up Jesus that that's controversial. But at the at the core, it represents the deep respect of Jesus that many rappers have, even though they may not be Christian. That's right. I know that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. But uh, no, that is a lot. And I'm like, well, we could just talk about this the whole yeah. episode. Um, and I mean, I appreciate that analysis and insight for this song and I'll probably never listen to it the same again. Um, But one question that comes up for me as you're talking about that, and maybe this is for another episode actually, but um, with regard to those who are in power in the music industry and hip hop artists and some of the, um, things that go on within that relationship and um, how certain artists are um, required to make their art in certain ways and how some artists have learned to escape that and enter in through another way. Um, How do you think that, and I'm not going to pretend to know all about that. I've read some and studied some and talked to a few people who do know more about that. Um, How do you think that, um, plays into a song like this, like how that dynamic of an artist trying to exist within a certain industry plays into the art they make. Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think what I hear, where are you going is, is, um, I mean, hip hopper, hip hopper, (laughs) rappers, Mm -hmm. um, have increasingly over the last 20 or 30 years ended up, starting record labels, having more uh, access to the traditional corridors of power in the music industry as running, you know, running labels, assigning artists, doing artist development um, and, and becoming uh, impresarios, you know, at the same time, if, if you look at the sort of the, the character or the image that at least a male rapper um, um, presents, it has been pretty it's been pretty similar uh, in that there is a, I should really say there's a sort of a very narrow range of, of identities that a, a that a hip hop artist can sort of uh, claim to represent. And it's basically the, the outlaw, uh, the, the, the gangsta, right. Or the outlaw who is a, you know, who has power through um, his ability to, and willingness to use violence through his wealth, through his, um, um, uh, ability to, 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 um, influence others through his words and of course his sexual abilities and all the things that I just mentioned there with the exception of wealth, we can trace that as a traditional caricature of African-Americans that goes all the way back to the 19th century to the minstrel stage. Um, and why I bring that up is that hip hop artists today are still only can really inhabit a specific narrow caricature of what it means to be a black person in America. Um, and that has been narrowly defined by mainstream culture for over 150 years. Um, now, look, I'm a white guy and, you know, I, I know a lot of this, not from personal experience, but from study and, and, and thought and talk to a lot of people, um, and there are a lot of really, really great scholars out there and writers that your listeners should should check out who are the real experts. I should mention Ebony Utley is a Ebony Utley is a terrific scholar on the West Coast who's who writes a lot about hip hop and religion. Of course, Michael Eric Dyson, who is a you know mainstream uh, ac- uh, academic now, has written a lot. 
Um, there are a lot of people. So if you should really just check your, your, you know, your listeners should listen to, should read the black scholars. Um, so I'm just placing myself as someone who's sort of trying to uh, popularize some of the stuff. There's anyway, for what it's worth. Um, and it's complicated. Basically, I think that it's interesting to see how, even though many African-Americans are running the record labels, their artists are still only sort of allowed by society to inhabit a certain char- character or image or caricature. Um, so, in you, I mean, how many rap songs are about, you know, being a great dad and picking your kid up at soccer practice? Like, there just aren't any. But listen, <laughs> there are a lot of black men in this country that do that. Right, you know, right. it's not, it's not, 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 it's not permitted. You can't be a rapper and do that. Just like you can't be a, a democratic country singer, perhaps, you know, there are, <laughs> every genre does that, you know, but like, I think it's complicated. So it's interesting. Like, I don't know most of the image songs about Jesus in hip hop present Jesus as essentially the ultimate gangsta as the ultimate example of, of a, of a man who wields power in society in these certain ways. There aren't many songs that um, look to Jesus for, for help. And from a from a position of of um, what's the word um, of of weakness or vulnerability, for example. Right, you don't, right. yeah, but there are lots of songs about Jesus in other styles that do like like folk music. There are a lot of folk mm-hmm. songs that see Jesus as that come to Jesus for help from a place of vulnerability. There just isn't vulnerability in hip hop, so there's sort of no way for Jesus to be that guy you pray to for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I might disagree with you that there's no vulnerability in hip hop, but um, maybe I hear you saying the um, pigeonholed image doesn't necessarily allow for vulnerability um, in ways that other genres inhabited by white people <laughs> um, who are more comfortable within the framework of white supremacy can inhabit vulnerability. Um, it's a better way to put so it. So I like, and I'm super interested in some of the ways that um, hip hop artists kind of subvert that. And anyway, so that's, I mean, we, again, <laughs> I feel like I could talk about that forever and I appreciate you um, letting us know that as a white scholar, you are limited in some of the ways you can talk about this. And I appreciate you sharing um, those names of black academics. And I will definitely link to those on, in the show notes. And um, I look forward to reading some of their work on this topic. Um, Okay. So let's move on to the next song. Um, Johnny Cash's the greatest cowboy of them all. Um, What else would you like to (laughs) share about that song and cash in general? Um, Johnny Cash is such an interesting country artist and, and American American musician um, who has never um, been shy about sharing his faith, though he's lived a life that has been, uh, he has also inhabited the, the outlaw in a lot of ways in his life. Uh, and he's, you know, the man in black, we don't tend to associate a man, you know, the man in black or the, even the color black with, you know, with, uh, with Jesus or, or Christianity. Um, and, at least within the country tradition, but generally speaking, Jesus tends to wear white, right? I mean, that's complicated, but still. It's pure. Exactly. Purity, so it's, right? It's really complicated, but he's also, I mean, he, he was famous for giving, you know, his concerts at prisons and stuff. And why, why did it work at Folsom Prison and stuff? Because, because the, because the inmates recognized he was an outlaw. He was hardcore. Yet at the same time, he has released so many songs about his faith. And he's been a, he himself has been a terrain for, for exploration of what it means to be a, a, a postmodern Christian for like 50 years or more. Um, now this song is, you know, kind of an older song and it's a great example of what happens in country music, which is when Jesus shows up in country music, he's oftentimes presented. Um, well, you know, that old saw about how God created us in his image. And then we did, we returned the favor. You know, when we, think of, when we think of God, we think of, we, we, we think of God in, in the image of the, of the most godlike person that we can think of. Right. And so in many genres, we see that. And in country music, Jesus tends to show up uh, compared to or as an example uh, or, or even in conversation with the gods of country music. And those tend to be the great singers like Hank Williams or George Jones or even Elvis, right? Um, also, the other he also tends to show up uh, compared to or sort of in conversation with or imagined as other sort of stock figures from country music. And of course the, the most important is, is the cowboy. 
And the cowboy stands for the strong, resilient, white, male, attractive, um, brave, dominating, mythic, you know, uh, mythic symbol of America. Uh, and I've, he's, you know, think about the, the way that the, so many of the, the great Western films, um, created and maintained ideologies of whether it is white supremacism or, or colonialism or Patrick, all these kind of things. Right. But the cowboy is an outlaw. He lives by his own rules. He's strong. Right. Uh, he's the, you know, women love him. You know, he dominates. You can see how any American man might want to be like a cowboy. So when Johnny Cash wants to sing a song about his Lord and savior, we have a song like the greatest cowboy of them all. And he says, I've always had my heroes. I've loved a lot of legends. Many men in my mind are riding tall, but my cowboy hero hats off to the man who rode a donkey. He's the greatest cowboy of them all. He loves all his little doggies. He speaks to them gentle and kind, kind and gentle, sorry. And he'll lift up any maverick that falls. He sees every stray that scatters like he's the only one that matters. He's the greatest cowboy of them all. And he goes on to say he rode off into the sunset, but he's coming back. Right, he'll call up the riders in the sky, getting ready for that roundup. He starts to push the metaphor, and you know it really works. I mean, shepherd, right? You know, you lose mm-hmm. nine, lose one shep, you lose one sheep, you go for him. You know, you got ninety nine. You know, the the angels coming back in the cloud, the Jesus coming back in the cloud at Revelation, right? The roundup, right? The 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 the, the harvested in the time that like it really works. Um, so here's a Jesus that is theologically really traditional. He's a he's an end time judge. He's one who 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 loves and, and he interestingly he hears he's very vulnerable because Cash is not saying he can go and defeat all the the Native Americans right like cowboys tended to do. He actually says, "Why do I like Jesus? Because he takes care of the weak, hmm. of his little of the little doggies, you know, of the of the of the sheep or the cows or whatever." So that's really interesting. Also, there's the fact that he's like singing about how much he loves this man, and country music is incredibly homophobic right but of course if you've also ever went to a sangha worship course there are lots of men singing about how much they love jesus um and i've been in those worship courses and it doesn't feel like sexual love of a man because it's not but on the surface there's this really powerful intimacy with this with this person that you think is a man so this also gets really complicated especially with country music but this song is really special because it focuses on jesus as being such a hero because he takes care of the little people. Mm-hmm. He's a protector, mm-hmm. right? Rather than a dominator. Okay. Does that make sense? I know it's a lot. But- yeah, <laughs> no, it's a lot and it makes sense. And of course it raises a ton of questions um, and things that I want to talk about that kind of um, springboard from that, if that's a term to use a word to use. Um, so, I love Johnny Cash's music and you mentioned how he had, you know, he is kind of an outlaw within the genre a little bit. Right. I don't know a whole lot about that, but um, is he looking or was he looking at country music within the framework of again, white supremacy and whiteness Um and kind of turning that on its head at all? Like, was he aware of that and doing that purposefully? Well, I mean, the thing is that the whole country music as a genre is incredibly dominated by, by white artists. Um, but the music is heavily indebted to the blues and to various styles of black music. I mean, when Johnny Cash was hanging out with Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis in the fifties, like inventing rock and roll, they were all borrowing from rhythm and blues and boogie woogie and, and all these kinds of styles. Um, Johnny Cash ended up being on the countryside and Elvis, you know, and Jerry Lewis on the, on the rock and roll side. So in his very, his, and, and Johnny Cash is a great blues singer. So he borrows from the blues heavily. So in that way, he's sort of on a, he's sort of upending the, the, the sort of the, the, the whiteness of country music while at the same time revealing that the whiteness of country music is actually a ruse because it's, core country <laughs> music is fundamentally based on the blues <laughs> right and um i wanted to i mean i should know how to is it mickey guyton yeah, mickey guyton, yeah. okay um 
I'm not super familiar with her music, but I want to say during the Grammys, she performed and I was like, okay, here we go. Like um, seeing, and then what Darius Rucker has Mm -hmm. transitioned to country music. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have any thoughts about, sorry, uh, this is turning into a um, episode about uh, white supremacy and, um, the subversion of white supremacy in music, but do you have thoughts about um, black country music, um, black country music performers, artists um, coming into their own now becoming more prevalent in this genre? It's really important. Uh, there, it's not just Mickey Guyton. There are a number of other folks, women and men, who are getting yeah. And and so there's sort of a turning. It feels like there's a turning turning point, especially because Mickey Guyton's song, you know, "Black Like Me," is not just like a country song that happens to be sung by a black person. It's a country right, right. song that talks about these issues, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, because even someone like Charlie Pride, you know, who was such an important early uh, black country musician, the only one for many years, it seemed like, you know, his music didn't ever or hardly ever engage with um, engage with you know racism even though he's recording in the 50s and 60s and stuff um, and I don't know his music too well there probably are some songs but um, I think the, the tr- tricky thing for black country musicians is um, well it's it's the same it, it, look you to fit within country music you have to check several boxes how your voice sounds what your music's about and even how you look um, now for a, most of the 20th century, it was just default that you were white. And the only question was, what kind of hat did you wear? Was it a cowboy hat or did you, when did you wear your cowboy hat? When did you not, you know, did you wear, did you wear like a Western gear or did you wear like trucker gear? You know, so there are like the visual image matters, but it's interesting how now um, you've got artists who, you know, who of course look different, um, you know, because they're, 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 you know, their skin is a different color, but also they're, also try to be authentic artists. And for many of them who love rhythm and blues or whatever, or hip hop, they, they want to bring that into their music. But for them, it's, it's, it's more, it's more tricky because when a art, white artist borrows from hip hop, which has happened a lot in country music over the last 10 years, you know, some purists might sniff at it, but they're not going to say it's not country. But when a black artist brings in hip hop suddenly, Oh, wait a minute, this is not really country at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the um, gatekeepers uh, tend to speak up. Yeah who are generally white people. Um, <laughs> okay. And then I have one more question about all this and kind of the cowboyness of country music. Um, have you read Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dume? No, it, that just came out right. Not too long ago. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to. Yeah. Okay. Well, when, and if you do, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that um, with regard to country music and cowboys and country music and faith and all of that all of those connections, which you may already, I mean, have explored some of the um, themes she explores in that book, but that's again, like a whole other conversation with a whole lot to think about and talk about. Sounds great. There are, you know, there are some great scholars who are doing work on, on, on religion and country music. Um, and I, I would not be surprised if she quotes some of them, but I'll, I'll definitely want to check it out. Um, okay. Yeah. Cause Jan, yeah. John Wayne's the, John Wayne is the guy, right? Um, right. Right. Uh, I ha- I don't think I've come across a song about Jesus and John Wayne, um, but you know um, it's probably going to happen. <laughs> probably will. Um, okay. Well, what was the next song? Oh, okay. So Jello, Jello, the opera. Yeah. Um, Jesus was a terrorist. So what she got on that one? <laughs> well, okay. So. Oh, by the way, before I go on, I just want to mention just about okay. country music. If you want to hear a really interesting country song about Jesus from the last couple of years, it's Thomas Rhett's Beer with Jesus, in which he imagines what he would do if he sat down with Jesus and the, over a beer, of course, and what he would ask him. And now this is actually an interesting song because it is describing um, Jesus as like a friend or like a buddy or even like a bro, which is another way in which it uh, just as an example of how if you're going to recreate God in your own image, it's, it's either going to be, it's usually going to be positive. Someone you already, you're going to compare him to someone you already hold dear, like, or honor and respect, like a cowboy or Hank Williams, or um, someone that you, you know, if you feel like you have a close personal relationship with Jesus and he were actually on the earth. Yeah. He'd be the kind of guy you want to have a beer with. 
Uh, and that mm -hmm. reveals a lot about American, you know, American evangelicalism. The idea that you can, I mean, very few Roman Catholics would imagine Jesus as someone that you would sit down and have a beer with, you know, just generally. So, but as a country, but of course we all know that the, the having a beer with someone in country music is, is what you, is it's one of the only places in country music where two guys can really have a heart to heart, you know, without mm. being gay. Uh, <laughs> so by putting Jesus into a, sharing a beer with him at like a, at a, at a honky tonk, like that's totally okay. He's just a bro dude. Um, so mm -hmm. that's, a, and, and by the way, it's, it's a, it's a okay song, but there's a hilarious video that someone made taking, just taking the song, but actually making a music video in which you actually have Jesus with his robe in a bar with okay, a cool. singer. And it's, so just Google it. It's hilarious. Cause okay. it's great. Anyway. Um, okay. So similarly, Jello Bear. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I want to, sorry. I want to add one more thing or ask <laughs> one more question before we move on to the next song. Yeah. Um, are there, since you mentioned some other scholars um, that we can read with regard to um, hip hop, are there scholars studying um, black country um, music artists or that you know of, or can you look for some for us or are there not any? Offhand, I don't know. Um, I don't know any recent work on, okay. on that. Okay. Um, I don't um uh, there is increasing amount of academic work on other communities that are not represented in country music. There's one book that's called like rednecks and queers, I think by a, a, mm -hmm. a you know, that term used you know, in a scholarly way um, about, you know, the trends of, of homoeroticism in country music. So there's, there's more and more cool work being done on country. So I would not be surprised if there's something really great coming out soon, if not already. Okay. And I imagine there are, um, books and studies and whatnot about the roots of country music. Um, if you could send me a list of those at some point, sure, that would be great. Okay, cool. Um, all right. Now <laughs> on to Jello. <laughs> yeah. So Jello Biafra, you know, who was with, who was the singer of the dead Kennedys, the seminal political hardcore punk band from the West coast um, in uh, you know, you know, they made their splash in the, in the eighties. Um, and, um, this song, Jesus was a terrorist is a little bit later. This is sort of a solo, it's sort of like a side project, whatever. Um, but you know, okay. okay so that we just mentioned the song called the greatest cowboy of them all, or, uh, beer with Jesus. Well, now we have Jesus was a terrorist. So think about American hardcore punk, right? Which is fundamentally based upon the idea that, um, uh, uh, Young people, primarily, it was this is primarily a white genre and still is. Um, but the, there have been some seminal black punk bands like Bad Brains, um, who you should check out if you don't know them. Um, where basically, um, you know, punk is basically a middle finger to society. A lot of British punk in the 70s was sort of nihilistic in the sense that, you know, it was basically, you know, screw everybody else just because we're young and we're angry and, and, and let's just, you know, you know, put everything into a blender and blend it up and blow it all up. And isn't it great to be, you know, young and loud and brash with colored spiky hair um, in American hardcore punk in the 1980s, a lot of it ended up being uh, really having a message, which is basically um, the, they're all out to get us uh, the conservative uh, um, political, religious, military, industrial complex of the Reagan era was essentially, uh, you know, dominating uh you know keep suppressing people of color um was highly judgmental was destroying the environment was was you know uh, trying to destroy the world through nuclear uh engagement in the cold war um and so we see a lot of songs in hardcore punk bands basically saying hey we're young people of america you guys are just really screwing up the, the world and the country for us uh and they brought a lot of anger and and politics to to their music and so just like with Jesus, the greatest cowboy of them all, I mean, who was the ultimate guy who said, fight the power, died as a martyr, and then transformed the world? Again, it's Jesus. Um, now, I do not think Jello Biafra is goes to church. Um, in fact, you know, there are, <laughs> I don't think so either. <laughs> and there's a lot of hardcore punk is distinctly atheist, if not agnostic. In fact, a lot of hardcore punk is not just agnostic. It's like virulently, virulently atheist. But a lot of hardcore punk songs still hold out Jesus as this, as this figure that they really respect. So this song goes, Jesus was a terrorist enemy of the state. 
That's why the Romans labeled him. So he was put to death. He died for his beliefs. What's changed today? Today, Bible-thumping cannibals reap money from his name by cable networks and power with old ladies' checks. If Jesus saw Pat Robertson, what do you think he'd say? Tax-free, they rewrite our laws and sick them on you. Women don't control their bodies. TV preachers do. Censor everything from bathing suits to science books, from the schoolroom to the bedroom. They want our thoughts or else. They treat us like the Romans used to treat the Christians. Even some church-going folks are scared. Isn't that amazing how, and I'm, I say, hallelujah, I am totally with you. <laughs> preach. Come, 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 go preach at my church. You know, I mean, and, and he's right. You know, I mean, he's talking, he's, he's saying how, how, how the religious right in the 80s, he mentions Pat Robertson, you know, is a, polit- is a powerful political and moral for- force. Are things different today? I, I, 75% of evangelicals voted for Trump, you know, for what it's worth. Um, and it's interesting that he uses Jesus. Say, look, Jesus is not was not the guy. Who, Jesus would not be on your side because Jesus was a terrorist. And again, who's saying this in the church? Now, I go to a really progressive church, and you will, you'll hear this, these kind of, this stuff said. But Jello Baffer just comes out and says it, screaming loud, usually swearing, and saying Jesus was a terrorist in a way that's, you know, you can't ignore. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like the message. Yeah, yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, while I was listening to that song and kind of searching and looking at Jello, I'm about to say it wrong, Biafra, Biafra yeah, Biafra's music. Um, we won't talk about this, but I will say um, I listened to Are You Drinking With Me, Jesus mm-hmm. by him. And it is a silly song, but at the same time, as someone who's thought a lot about loneliness and belonging, ah. um, uh, that's a question I would ask sometimes. And I'm pretty sure I have asked it. And, and as a contemplative um, and spiritual director, you know, if God is everywhere, are you right here drinking with me, Jesus? So um, anyway, uh, if you want to listen to that song, um, audience people, listeners, you can listen to it. Um, I won't ask you to go into any detail because I do want to, if it's okay with you, kind of shift gears into some more personal um, things with regard to art and faith and how you experience um, your faith with regard to art. Um, well, and your doubt, if that's something you'd want to share. Um, so personally, how has studying popular music affected your faith and or your doubt? Well, the simple answer is that I found in secular popular music, a kind of honest and authentic wrestling with faith and truth and Christianity that I haven't found anywhere else. Now it's out there. And to be honest, I, I was, I was raised Catholic when I, in the, when I was in high school, my, my dad got born again and we ended up going to the big evangelical church. I stayed in the evangelical world until my, you know, until my late twenties or so. And slowly sort of deconstructed, as they say, to now be a, you know, progressive Christian. So my, uh, I have only sort of recently discovered the contemplatives. Have I discovered negative theology? Have I discovered um, a lot of, you know, Catholic and Orthodox theology, as well as even some of the, you know, process thought and a lot of the theological traditions that really are within a Christian structure are, are challenging a lot of the orthodoxies that I just thought were said and done. Um, so there, there is a lot of theology out there that embraces mystery and doubt and challenges people to think about what faith means. I just didn't find that until, you know, the last 10 years, but where I, where I did find it was in popular music because this is the terrain and these secular songs about Jesus, but also, you know, about spirituality in general is you get people who have essentially nothing to lose. Cause look, if you're recording for a, for a Christian record label, I mean, there's a narrow band of things you're allowed to say of doubt you're allowed to bring in. Now there are indie Christian rock bands. I mean, Sufjan Stevens, you know, was a, is, you know, was, is a Christian has started in the Christian music world, but left it, you know, in a lot of ways for a number of reasons. And his music grapples with faith in powerful ways, you know, even now, but that's the exception that proves the rule, you know, um, Christian artists, artists who take faith seriously, don't, allow doubt into their music because it doesn't work for like a 
a praise and worship chorus, you know? I mean, there are, there are lots of great indie Christian songwriters. And I know they are, but right. popular musicians, you know, they tend not to talk about religion a lot, but when they do, they oftentimes take it really seriously. And that can mean seriously angry at the religion of their youth. There are a lot of pop songs, angry at Jesus in the church, or I should say about the church. There are a heck of a lot of songs about Christian hypocrites, but there are also a lot of songs that really wrestle with faith and the meaning of Jesus. And it's in those songs where I have found, you know, my people where, I mean, when I say they have nothing to lose, like what? No, they weren't going to play a gig at a church anyway, you know, and singing a song about Jesus. It's, it's the only thing, the only way you're going to lose as a pop singer or a pop music singer is if you're a phony. And this is really important, I think, because popular music is based upon authenticity. Like for you to any artist, you've got to convince your listener that you are being honest and honest and authentic. Um, and um, so when you talk about God or Jesus, like if you if you don't do it authentically and honestly, you know, you will be you will be seen as a charlatan immediately. That's that's what you'll lose. Whereas, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of dissembling in the church, like a lot of people who are not admitting authentically to their doubt in the church, but right. there's no room for that in pop music. That's yeah. what you'll lose. So here's a terrain where people can yell at Jesus and swear at Jesus and call out to Jesus and, and say, Jesus, I don't believe you're there in a song, in which they talk to Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, 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 and I hear that and I'm like, yeah, there's a space for me. And so that's been really powerful for me as I try to figure out what I believe and how what I believe now is different from what I used to believe, which is basically saying that doubt is not the enemy, but it's the, right. it's the avenue towards real faith. Yeah. So are there a few um, artists or songs that um, come to mind when I ask you some that have been more influential than others in your, in your faith and doubt? Um, you know, I, I have a, you know, the song Jesus Walks by Kanye West, you know, from 2004 or three or whatever it was. That's a really interesting song because it's, um, it's claiming that Jesus walks with him and with, as he says, the hustlers, the strippers, the drug dealers. And there's nothing in that song where Kanye says, Jesus walks with them as long as they claim him as their personal Lord and savior and go to a certain kind of church Sundays. And you know, you probably better go to Wednesday night Bible study because you might not be really a committed Bible believing Christian. First of all, it's hard to rhyme with that. And in hip hop, you got to (laughs) rhyme, but you know, but look at the Bible, you know, Jesus does preach repentance. He does, but he, but the Bible also says that Jesus loves you no matter what, you know, and there's that claim that's hospitality and the fact that nothing, nothing can can separate you from the love of God, right? And and that song was I heard that song when I was really an evangelical, and it challenged me to wrestle with that song for a long time because I thought Kanye was wrong, and, and I think he's actually that song's a much I think much better song than any of his gospel stuff because it mm. really ed, it's not edgy to be edgy. It's really sort of making a claim that's going to be unsettling. Um, there are a lot of songs, most of the Jesus songs that I sound that are, that, that, that are, that are critical or negative, I found are actually not critical of Jesus, but about um, hypocrisy. Like, mm-hmm. so that, so a lot of those songs are helpful for me to think, how am I being like the hypocritical Christian? Um, there are also a few songs here and there that I think are pretty powerful. Um, trying to find would be a really, a really good one. Cause like, there are so many, but I'm trying to find a couple that might be particularly powerful. Um, there's the song called "If I Believe You" by the 1975, uh, this English dance dance rock band. Um, that is again one of these prayers to Jesus, saying, "I don't believe you, but let me pray to you." Mm-hmm. You know. Um, okay, I've never heard of the 1975, oh, so I will have to listen to that. Good stuff. Um, uh, no, Noah Gunderson, who's this pop uh, sort of folk singer, mm-hmm. it's a song about Jesus that basically apologizing to Christians for, for what he's done in their name, uh, being moralistic and judgmental. Um, there are a lot of like ex, there are a lot of sort of ex evangelicals writing music that is sort of an attempt to sort of expiate what they see as their sins. So again, I find myself there as well in a sense, but 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to be actually in, in I'm developing a, that the academic article on that I wrote about these 500 songs, it, it just came out in a book and uh, a chapter in a book. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm making a website where you can find these songs oh, great. on my delvincase.com. And I, it's, I'm going to finish it by the end of April. So, um, Oh, good. Okay. Well, let me know when it's ready and I'll like add it to, um, the show notes for this and, you know, maybe by then we'll, um, I mean, that's not that far away. Yeah. So you'll be able to, I'm like, Oh, we're at the end of March practically. (laughs) Sorry to interrupt. I I was like, you should be able to like, look, find a category of like songs about doubt or songs, prayer songs, you know, and that will be listed right there. Uh, and it'll be, you can even search for songs on that topic. So I'm hoping that that might be actually like, so if you you asked me this a month from now, I could just call up my website and I'd have better answers. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, um, okay. So before I ask the next question that I was going to ask, um, real quick, do you, are you writing any more popular, um, like books or like for a more general audience about this topic. I'm next week. I'm going to be, going to be writing a, a, uh, a short piece for mockingbird um, magazine okay. about mm-hmm. Taylor Swift. About awesome. One of her new, new songs called illicit affairs, which is off folklore, mm-hmm. which is a pretty, pretty terrific song, I think. And I think it's really interesting. A song about sort of sin and guilt. And then, um, I am putting together a book of proposal for a book about theology of the Beatles, which nice. I hope to finish assuming it gets accepted. I hope to finish in like 2022. Okay. I've actually written about Taylor Swift. And <gasps> <Mockingbird>, I think No, <laughs> which I hesitate to like even confess to you because um, yikes, right? Like you actually know what you're talking about. Um, no, no, no. And that's, what's great about pop music is that like, what, why do I know what I'm talking about? Because I can talk about the music. That's, that's like the only thing that I, I claim to be able to do, but mm-hmm. pop music, you can engage with pop music on the level of the lyrics, on the level of the artist, all that kind of stuff. Right. And there's, it's not like classical music where you kind of have to know a lot about classical music to say something smart about it. Right. 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 So, which is why I've only written about pop music. Um, and I read about Taylor Swift when I kind of like one of the first pieces I had published, I think for um, Christ and pop culture. Yeah. And then my book, uh, the great belonging I wrote about um, the band Chicago and then a few other songs that were, um, it's an essay about music and memory and belonging through music and belonging through art. Um, So yeah, I have, I enjoy writing about music, but it's really cool for me to hear you talk about music and read your writing um, because you know a lot more about just beyond how a song makes me feel or the memories I associate with a song and that kind of thing. But there's, and, and I say like, it's just like religion. Like you go to Bible study, not everyone needs to know Greek. And right, right, right. usually the best preachers are the ones who don't focus on like the particular participle in Greek, but actually say, say something that helps your life. And so I lay no claim to be able to do the latter. I'm just the rare guy who can like in that song, illicit affairs. Like I'm going to, I'm talking about um, how the musical structure actually tells some of the story. And that's not something that like you might be able to talk about. So I'm able to bring out maybe one element of the song, which I think is helpful, but it's not the only element that matters. You know what I mean? Right. Right. <laughs> but, and then me reading that piece and thinking about that element and then paying attention to it. The next time I listen to the song will influence how I hear the song and like the element that I have thought more about. So hopefully, yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Oh, it will. I'm pretty sure. Um, okay. So where are you finding creative inspiration right now? Oh, the Hebrew Bible. Um, you know, my, my, I, though I do a fair amount of writing on popular music and religion, I, my trainings as a classical composer and I conduct an orchestra. So I'm, I'm really, I'm fully immersed in the, in the modern classical music world. And I, I write music, not usually for the church, but actually I write music for the concert hall that explores and engages with, and oftentimes interrogates the the Christian tradition. And these days I've been writing more and more pieces that, inf, you know, that set to music te- texts from the Hebrew Bible, particularly the Psalms or other prophetic books or stories you know that old phrase keep austin weird you know like the town mm-hmm. well i feel like 
uh, one of the things that the contemporary arts do is to keep the Bible weird um, because the Bible is really weird and it really very weird. And yeah, um, modern artists, contemporary composers, poets, you know, folks who are you know, like Mal- whether it's Malcolm Geit or Christian Wyman or like um, uh, Marie Howe. So these poets, like these are people that are really taking seriously the Christian tradition, but really exploring it through their work. And there are a lot of modern composers that do this and they write music that sounds can be spiky and challenging and, and unsettling because the Bible is. So a lot of the music that I write, it takes these traditional texts and, and tries to, and doesn't try to, I'm not going for shock value, but really try to, to put myself in the, pers- um, in the, in the point of view, I should say, or write the piece from the point of view of someone who's really digging it and taking these texts seriously and not trying to sort of um, domesticate them through like a modern Christian lens uh, to let them speak uh, in ways that uh, remind the listener of how challenging they were and are. Uh, for example, I just, I just finished a really big piece based on the sacrifice of Isaac, which is a really problematic story, no matter yeah. how you cut it. And also has been used to justify anti-Semitism for 2000 years. And yet this is a text that we read in the lectionary all the time. So if I'm going to set it to music, like it's, it's not going to be easy to hear. I mean, somebody's, it doesn't matter whether God steps in and says, don't do it at the end. Like that's not the point. The point is that Abraham was spent that whole walk with his son, knowing he was going to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that's disturbing it is. in many ways. So I'm not sure about inspiration, but it's more like what makes me want to write a piece of music is, 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 is these powerful stories that are so old, but so relevant, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and where can we hear this music? Um, is it accessible to people like me? <laughs> All of my music. Are there websites or um, uh, my albums? Music, yes, or my, 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 I, have a, I have a record that's on Spotify and a couple of other pieces there. My website, which is delvincase.com, that's D-E-L-V-Y-N-C-A-S-E. That's got you know, links to SoundCloud and information about a lot of my pieces that haven't been released on you know on a, on a label yet um and there's a little description of each piece um, um and there's a lot of music that's that's beautiful and and inspires hope but there is also there are also pieces that that take seriously the the intensity uh and the power of these ancient texts um and don't hold back great um all right if you have a few more minutes, I have a few more questions. Um, so who are some colleagues, writers, musicians, composers, or any other type of artists um, from any genre or form of art whose work has helped form you in your work and in your faith? There are certainly a lot of classical composers over the years that have been very influential to me. And if your listeners don't know, I mean, the music of Igor Stravinsky, who is a Russian uh, composer um, in the sort of the first half of the 20th century, like the 20s to the 70s, maybe, who wrote a fair amount of really powerful sacred music, um, but that, again, never pulls any punches. Um, you know, modern composer today, there's some a guy named James McMillan, who's a Scottish composer, who's a Roman Catholic, who writes really powerful stuff. Um, there are, um, so these are the composers, maybe some of whom who've written a lot of sacred music. Um, um, but to be honest, um, I tend to take a little more inspiration from people working in other arts because uh, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to sound like somebody else. So if James McMillan writes a piece that I really, really like, that's bad because like, I, I want to write that piece, but I can't cause he already wrote it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a visual artist who lives North of Boston and teaches at Gordon college named Bruce Herman. I don't know if you know that name. And yeah, Bruce, I know who Bruce is. He's a wonderful, he's been a mentor for me for about 20 years. He's been a person who's helped me figure out how to be a Christian and a, contemporary artist who's not working in the church because Bruce is a portraitist and a painter who's, you know, takes sacred themes for his, a lot of his work, but he doesn't work for a church, you know, just like I don't write anthems or hymns, you know? So Bruce has been a mentor for me and his work's incredible. Um, I mentioned a couple of poets like Marie Howe, 
who's extraordinary, and Christian Wyman, who you know is also extraordinary, great poets, um, who are just do wonderful. And I've been I know both of them, but you know uh, their work has really in, influenced me. I'm trying to think; those would be sort of my the top the top of my list. Yeah, yeah. So, are you connected at all with the Glen community, or have you? attended any Glenn workshops? I haven't, but I've heard so much about it. So I, I want to learn more. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you should lead a Glenn <laughs> workshop <laughs> actually. Um, I mean, you would enjoy mm. participating too, but I think you could do some really cool things there. Um, all right. I do also want to hear a bit more about Deus Ex Musica? Yeah, so, Did I say that right? Yeah, Deus, Deus Ex Musica. Deus, Deus Ex Musica. Sorry about that. My is that that's Latin, right? Yeah, and so the um, okay. <laughs> this is me not knowing a whole lot about things um, and being honest about it. So yeah, I did take Latin in junior high for a year or two, but that that was a long time ago. Well, Deus Ex Machina is the term that you know people use. It means like the at the last minute, you know, a a a, a um. In a drama like uh, God from the Machine, basically, long story short, it's like at the very last minute where someone swoops in and like saves the day. And so Deus Ex Musica is kind of a pun on that, but it really means, literally means God from music. And Deus Ex Music is an organization that I founded. It's an ecumenical organization of um, that focuses and promotes the use of sacred music as a resource for faith formation. Uh, so what we do is we, we, we get musicians and teachers and educators and scholars and writers pastors together and we try to create resources that are live or online that basically combine music listening with discussion and the it's it's a very basic idea you listen to a piece of sacred music you discuss about how that piece of music um helps you explore its text or ideas in the christian tradition that's it um, and so another way to describe our events is musical bible study so instead of gathering around a, a, a a scripture and talking about it, how it, what it means and how it affects you. Instead, you listen to a piece of music that sets that text to music mm-hmm. and then talk about how the musical interpretation uh, provides a, a way into the, into the text scripture. Mm-hmm. And when you use the arts or music to do this, it opens up a space for two things. One for really ecumenical discussion um, because rather than, um, and it does, it does that because when you respond to art, you respond, you, look, you have to respond authentically and honestly and subjectively. Otherwise, you're not doing it right. Like, you know, you have to. And so if you're sitting next to someone whose view of the Bible is very different than yours, let's say they're a biblical literalist, right? That's going to be a hard Bible study to, to do. And that's why ecumenical Bible studies don't really work. But if you sit down and listen to, and talk about Mozart's interpretation of a biblical text, Suddenly, you've got this lens, this mediating lens that you talk about, and it provides this space where you're allowed to say, you know, what I hear Mozart doing is I hear God presented as a very gentle, tender creator. And then the person next to you might say, it's funny, I hear in this part, I hear God as being sort of angry. And you know what's great is there's no way to look at your at your partner and say you're wrong because that's, right. that's an opinion. So it's sort of it's sort of it, it sort of punts on the idea of who's who's about whether the Bible really happened or didn't or what it literally means, and instead allows us to engage with each with each other in an honest, authentic, collegial way about the really important things about Scripture, which is the spiritual dimension. How does it help you think about who God is and how to how to follow Christ? Um, so we run these events live and on and online where we bring all these different kind of Christians together, listen to pieces of music. And then talk about how it affects our faith. Um, and people love it, actually. <laughs> it's a project that's actually worked. <laughs> Yay, I'm glad. It's nice when that works out. Um, so how can we learn more about this organization and um, those gatherings? Yeah, our website is deus-xex-musica.com. And you can get that to, get to that through my website, you can actually listen to, we have examples of the pieces of music we use. We've got um, recordings of brand new pieces of music we've commissioned by a diverse crew of composers from around the world. These are modern responses to the, the Psalms in this case. Um, and um, heck, you can even see when our next event is, or you can even bring us in to do a, a Zoom workshop through your church. We do that all the time, actually. 
to a church organization. We run like discussion symposia, that kind of stuff. Um, we run these discussion things. Um, so yeah, please, please visit the website. Okay, great. And how, when did you start this organization? How long has it been around? It's only been sitting around since 20, 2019. Uh, oh, wow. We've, and we've grown and this is, you know, I'd like to say I see the spirit moving because we've grown and had opportunities and more and more people have gotten involved. We also have a, a blog with tons of articles and lots of recordings and a podcast and a video series. So um, a lot of resources on the website for people who just generally are interested in the conversation about music and faith. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to look into that <laughs> since I'm so interested in the conversation about music and faith. Um all right. How many hours um, sleep do you get each night? <laughs> oh, I, I, <laughs> might be a personal, too personal of a question, but I'm just wondering. Oh, I get eight to nine hours. I have to. Uh, I'm just okay. I just operate in a very. I, I do. I, <laughs> I operate at a high level, and then I crash. I mean, I have. Okay. I have three kids. I you know I get it all done in like six hours a day, but I'm very efficient. <laughs> okay. Good to know. I'm glad you're. Sleeping. I talk fast. <laughs> Okay. Um, all right. Thanks again for joining me. Is there anything else you'd like to share um, that we have not t- talked about yet about your work or just anything that has come up during our conversation or whatever? I just um, really appreciative of the chance to talk about these things. Uh, and I appreciate, appreciate of you, Charlotte, for um, creating this forum and this, uh, the website and for introducing me to some, people and resources and thinkers. Um, if anybody out there is listening is interested, again, please reach out to me or to Deus Ex Musica because we are both me and the organization are continuing to look for artistic partners, for interesting individuals who might have new ideas and just for people that we can talk about, talk with about, about art and, and faith. So please reach great, out. That's great. <laughs> great. All right, that's all for this episode of Our Faith in Writing. Thanks so much for listening and giving your attention to the ways writing and reading help us belong to ourselves, others, God, and the world. I'd love for you to visit us online at ourfaithinwriting.com where you can find more information about my spiritual direction for writers and other contemplative offerings, read essays and articles by writers who care about faith, and learn more about our partners and sponsors. I'd also love to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Charlotte Donlin. Subscribe to Our Faith in Writing wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review the show, letting us know how these conversations help you feel less alone in your writing life and your reading life. <laughs>